Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Amsterdam Talk, season three, episode 12. And tonight we will be talking about Alzheimer's awareness, bringing in, you know, Lisa Skinner. How you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Rod. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm glad you was able to stop by and help us out tonight. You know, but it's before my we get pleasure. and thank you again for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Before we get started, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I have a very unique profession. I am what's called in my industry a behavior specialist. Okay. And my expertise is in helping people live a better life when they have Alzheimer's disease or a related dementia. So I work with families and caregivers and show them how to reconnect with a person who is suffering from memory loss and cognitive decline because it's a whole different relationship once somebody, you know, reaches probably about the mid stage of the disease, they can no longer communicate and, you know, their brains are changing so dramatically from the brain damage uh, being done that mm -hmm. you really need to learn um, a new set of skills, very specialized skills. So um, the family members and or the caregivers who are caring for the person can um, enjoy their relationship and have a quality relationship. Because from what I've seen since I've been doing this for just about 30 years now, those relationships are very often very strained and stressed and um, complicated because nobody's on the same page. They're not communicating properly. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I do. Okay. How long have you been doing this? Just about 30 years. So long wow. time. Long time. Yeah, 30 years. We clap it up then. 30 years. That's a long time. But my experience with Alzheimer's disease goes back 50 years because my grandmother had it. I was a teenager. And then since then, I've had seven more family members. So it's hit my family really hard. And... I just happened to choose this profession. So, um, you know, I've, I've walked in the family members and the caregiver's shoes, and I've also uh, been in the weeds professionally and, and seen pretty much everything. So um, my goal is to be able to help people so they don't have to try to figure it out from square one and just, um, you know, follow my lead, I guess you could say. Okay, okay, okay. So we can get right into it. So you mentioned dementia is with it. Like, what is like the, the difference between Alzheimer's and, and dementia? That's a great question. And uh, even people who have family members with Alzheimer's disease, I just read a post this morning uh, this gentleman posted in a, uh, a Alzheimer's group says, I still don't understand the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. So let me explain it to everybody. <coughs> um, 
Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease. Dementia is not a disease at all. It's really an umbrella term that's used to refer to all the symptoms that we see that are attached to a person living with Alzheimer's disease or one of the other brain diseases that causes dementia. And there are over a hundred diseases that cause dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common. It's the one we all hear about, unless something like Robin Williams names come up in the conversation. And then we say, oh yeah, Lewy body dementia. That's another brain disease that causes dementia. So there's over a hundred of those. So if you were to go to your doctor and say to your doctor, I'm not feeling well, I've got a fever, I've been running a fever, I've got body aches, I am sick to my stomach, I ache everywhere. You're describing the symptoms that you feel to your doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're hoping your doctor will figure out what it is you have, one of the viruses, maybe you have COVID, maybe you have a cold, maybe you have the flu. But what you're describing to him are your symptoms. So think of dementia as describing to your doctor the symptoms if you were sick. Mm -hmm. And then what disease is causing these symptoms? There's a lot of symptoms that are attached to these brain diseases that cause dementia. And they're all Mm -hmm. kind of intermixed. And a lot of people can actually live with more than one type of brain disease at the same time. So that's very common for somebody to have Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal lobe disease at the same time or vascular dementia. So you're going to see a wide range of these symptoms um, in each individual person. And no two people go through this journey the exact same way. But all of these symptoms that we see from person to person fall under the umbrella term of dementia. So hopefully that makes sense and uh, clarifies that for people who weren't sure the difference. Yeah, it it clarifies a lot. So with both of those, um, with both of those that we spoke of, Alzheimer's and uh, dementia, is it genetic? It tends to run in families and there is a gene that you can be tested for that can tell you whether or not you carry the gene that's called APOE4. And if you do, then you are at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, Some people carry Uh, one gene from one parent, Chris Hemsworth just announced yesterday that he was tested and he has two genes, one from each parent. And he's going to take some time away from acting because now he's really um, concerned about developing Alzheimer's. But that said, even if you carry the gene. If you carry one gene, you're at risk for Alzheimer's. If you carry two genes like Chris just found out that he does, then you're even more at risk. But it doesn't mean you're going to get it. 
you might have 50% chance. But just to uh, clarify that too, because this is really complicated stuff. There are many, many, many risk factors that go into the bucket to determine whether or not somebody's um, risk is higher or lower. And there are many risk factors um, that fall into that mix. There are modifiable risk factors and there are non-modifiable risk factors. The modifiable risk factors are ones like uh, diabetes and okay. heart disease. Heart disease is the number one risk factor that's manageable for people to develop Alzheimer's disease, believe it or not. The non-modifiable risk factors, number one is age. That's the number one risk factor for any of us developing Alzheimer's disease. And it usually shows up starting at age 65 with the exception of what we call early onset Alzheimer's, which is the rarer form of Alzheimer's, but that hits people anywhere from about 30 to uh, up to about 65. 50 is very average. So given, um, given that age is the number one risk factor and you can't do anything about your age. So your age is your age. And Alzheimer's disease, the traditional form of Alzheimer's disease typically shows up when we um, are at about 65 years old. And then our risk doubles every five years after that. So to put that in perspective for y'all, if you're 85 years old, you have a one in three chance of being one of those people at 85 years old to develop Alzheimer's disease. One in three. Hmm. So then you take your modifiable risk factors. And the number one is uh, heart disease. Diabetes okay. is right up there. Sleep apnea is up there. Um, lifestyle choices, what you eat, how you exercise, whether or not you carry that gene. So the more of these risk factors that apply to you as an individual person increases mm -hmm. your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So with the gene question, if you carry the gene, and then you've got mm -hmm. a heart condition and you uh, suffer from sleep apnea and you live on fast food and you watch TV all day. Your chances of developing Alzheimer's disease just went sky high versus somebody who doesn't have as many risk factors going against them. I feel like, Ms. Lisa, you just described my whole life right there. Which uh, one? Do you live on fast food? <laughs> fast food, TV, sleep apnea. <laughs> like, wow. Like, well, oh, man. what I tell people is um, you can start making modifications to your lifestyle now and lower your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease when you're 65. And whatever you do starting now will help lower that risk with all of those risk factors that are applied to you. <laughs> uh -oh. I'm, okay. I'm a huge risk factor. I've had eight family members live with a brain disease that causes 
dementia. So I have to really kind of be cognizant of, of all of my risk factors because I'm already start out of the gate high risk. That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. So the, the research shows that, you know, African-Americans are twice as likely to develop um, Alzheimer's as Caucasians and Hispanics are 1.5 times more likely. Is it because African-Americans is the lifestyle or we carry that gene? Well, you could carry the gene, but even if you don't carry the gene, uh, just your ethnicity is uh, putting you at a higher risk. But that statistic has actually changed. Uh, Latinos are now um, at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Just recently, they're like at 50% now. And a lot of it, I mean, it's just ethnicity. Um, some eth uh, ethnic backgrounds are more susceptible or more prone to developing certain diseases and certain things than, than others. But um, that's one of the non-modifiable risk factors uh, in that category. So next to age, then your gender, women, develop Alzheimer's disease more than men. That was uh, my next question, gender. Yeah, um, and the reason why scientists, doctors are not 100% sure, but they think it has to do with women outliving men. But now there's some speculation that the hormones, the estrogen that ravages our bodies, especially when we're going through menopause, might have um, a correlation to women developing Alzheimer's disease. They're studying that. So they're not really definitively sure, but um, just statistically women, there are more women who develop it than men, but it might be because women tend to outlive men. And then um, your ethnic background plays a role so you're right, what you said, African-Americans are at a higher risk, Asians, Pacific Islanders, and um, Latinos just kind of moved up to the top of that ladder. They are at a much higher risk now than any other uh, ethnic background. And um, one of the things that we're seeing recently are the baby boomer generation is aging and they started turning 65 you know in the last 10 years a lot mm -hmm. of them are in the first group of baby boomers are now in their 70s we the baby boomers are the largest human population in history and that has a lot to do with the uh, number of people who are now projected to develop Alzheimer's disease is really just by the sheer number of how many baby boomers are aging. So that has a lot to do with it. And then um, one of the things that studies have shown for some of the other ethnic background groups is lifestyle and um, socioeconomic status. They don't a lot of um, a lot of them don't have uh, access to to resources. Um, so one of the things I, that I've researched with the Latino population 
they actually are very prone to develop diabetes and heart disease. And one of the problems is a lot of Latinos, especially in our country, don't have access to good medical care. So let's say, you know, they do develop diabetes and it's going mm -hmm. untreated. They're not managing it. So that's going to increase that their risk factor of developing Alzheimer's disease because studies have definitely shown that there is a, a direct correlation between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease or heart disease and Alzheimer's disease and sleep deprivation. And there's just a, you know, a list of different diseases and lifestyle choices that are tied to developing or your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Well, you know, with the disease, they say there's the seven stages of it. There are actually two different staging protocols and there is a seven stage um, model. And then there's a three stage model. I prefer to go by the three stage model because it's less complicated. Some okay. people, I mean, I've worked with a lot of fam thousands of families over the years and some like to go by the seven stage one and some like to go by the three stage one. But mm -hmm. the point of the stages is it's not that accurate because they're going to list if you were to research that, let's say you go to the Alzheimer's Association and I believe their model is the three stage model. They're okay. going to list all of the signs that fall into each stage. But again, I said that everybody experiences the disease differently. So you mm -hmm. can look at whatever model you prefer, look at the signs in each stage, but it might not um, match up to your loved one or the person that you know, your uh, relative, because not everybody follows the models exactly. So... I think it's just really a, a guideline more than anything else. Okay, so uh, the three, the three with the three stage model. What's in the three stage model? Early stage, mid stage, and and late stage. And um, one kind of really interesting fact about the early stage, between mm -hmm. the early stage and the middle stage. Most people, and this is this is um, factual information, most people are not even diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease until they're already well into their middle stage. And the reason why is because in the early stage of the disease, the signs and the symptoms and the behaviors are so subtle that it's very difficult to differentiate if a person is um, experiencing either normal age forgetfulness mm -hmm. or what we call mild cognitive impairment, which is a more severe form of normal age forgetfulness, but it doesn't always turn into Alzheimer's disease. So when it really becomes blatantly obvious that your relative, your loved one, is probably going through something more serious than just normal aging forgetfulness. They're already mm -hmm. well into their mid-stage. 
And that's when you really start to notice um, obvious behaviors, like they repeat themselves over and over and over again in the same conversation or tell the same story over and over and over again in the same conversation. They don't just, it's, it's, it's more serious than just forgetting where you left your keys or forgetting where you put your sunglasses down and oops, they're on top of your head. So really when it comes to the point where it's so obvious to everybody, you're already in your mid stage. And then a lot of family members will say, oh my gosh, there were signs, but we just dismissed them because they, it didn't happen all the time or regularly. It was just, you know, very subtle. So uh, that's one difference between the early stage, if you follow the three-stage model, and the mid-stage is it's pretty obvious that there is something more seriously wrong with your loved one than just, you know, getting older, brain's tired, and you forget things, names, you forget names. So when it really starts to interfere with somebody's regular lifestyle, mm -hmm. uh, another thing to look for as if they um, misplace their keys and they're mm -hmm. in their early stage of, of uh, not early stage, but uh, just normal aging forgetfulness. I mean, we all mm -hmm. do that. We do that when we're in our teens. The other day I walked into my kitchen and I couldn't for the life of me remember why I went into that room. And I knew that I <laughs> or something. So I turned around and walked out. And I go, what did I walk in there for? Oh, yeah. Then I remembered. Well, that happens to all of us. That's part of normal aging. But if I walked into my kitchen to make myself a cup of coffee and I got to my coffee maker, which I've been, you know, setting up and, and brewing coffee for decades. And then all of a sudden couldn't figure out how I was supposed to work it. That's a red flag. Okay, so what I have here is the um, mild cognitive impairment, which they say MCI, mm -hmm. the MCI, which basically um, you start, it says, you know, may vary person to person. You may experience memory loss, difficult recalling known words, vision problems, impaired reasoning or judgment. Um, and it could lead to behavior such as you just said, wandering and getting lost, forgetting to pay bills, missing yeah. appointments, losing things and repeatedly asking the same questions. That's very common when you're developing either MCI or uh, the more serious Alzheimer's. But um, the one thing that it's kind of important to just note is if somebody does have mild cognitive impairment, it doesn't always develop into Alzheimer's disease. Uh, once a person does have Alzheimer's disease, it progresses and it, it, it does not get better. Where MCI could just stay MCI and not develop into an actual Alzheimer's disease. A lot of people who develop mild cognitive impairment do progress into Alzheimer's disease, but it's not a foregone conclusion that you will. But once you have Alzheimer's disease, then there's no going back. You It's, it's a degenerative condition and progressive and um it's terminal people don't recover from alzheimer's disease okay exactly. so one of 
so one of the things is that happens, you know, once you develop this, it becomes personality and behavioral problems. Yes. And the reason for that is, um, I think I, I mentioned early on, is there's so much damage being done to the brain cells and the brain is changing. And with that, the changes, their cognitive abilities decline. And as you just said, Rod, you lose your sense of reasoning. You set, lose your perspective. You lose your mm -hmm. ability to, de to determine whether or not something's a big deal or, or a little deal. And um, eventually people are going to respond to whatever the trigger is um, pretty much on emotion because that's what they're going to be left with. And then the other side of the difficulty is losing your ability to communicate and articulate things. Tell somebody if you're in pain, tell somebody if you're hungry, tell somebody if you're cold or you're too hot or your pants are too tight. And because you're not able to verbally tell people these things, you're going to have to figure out an alternative way to communicate that something is wrong, that you either want something or need something. And that shows up in behaviors. So as family members and caregivers, it's up to us to figure out why we're seeing a particular behavior and what it is that our loved one is trying to tell us. They're not acting out to just be difficult. Be They're acting trying out. to tell you something. But it's up to us to try to figure out what that something is. Right. And so once you, now once you really know your person and kind of have a history of, of them, then you can start to figure out what behavior might mean what and and uh, you know then be able to to uh decode what it is they're trying to tell you and then you can um know how to effectively respond to those behaviors to get the situation under control and that's what i teach people that's uh that's um yes accusing people of stealing is very common and I was going to read that because I saw it pop up in the comments over here. So accusing people, someone said accusing people of stealing and don't know who they are and want to fight. So would that fall under like the category, it's falling under cognitive behavior, but would it fall like under the category of like hallucinations and delusions? Um, accusing somebody of stealing from you is really more of paranoia, which is another common behavior that you see with people with Alzheimer's. And I'll um, refer back to my grandma. She was my very first experience. And I went over to her house. She only lived a few hours away. I mean, um, a few miles away from me. So I visited her regularly. I grew up with her. My mom used to leave me at her house and I'd help her with her baking. So I knew my grandmother really, really well. And then when I was a teenager and started visiting her, I would go over to her house and she would start telling me about these birds that lived in her mattress and they mm -hmm. would come, yeah, they, and they would come out at night and peck at her face. And mm -hmm. that was one of her stories. And then 
Another story that she insisted upon was that rats were invading her home and she could see them running along her walls. And then she would insist that these people were breaking into her house when she wasn't looking and stealing her jewelry. One time she even um, told me she got a new jewelry box and it was locked and she insisted that she didn't lock it, that the thieves did and insisted that I break the jewelry box open so she could see if her jewelry was still there. And then finally she started telling me that these men were going to, um, were constantly coming into her home and they were going to harm her as she took a shower. So you've got several behaviors there. The birds in the mattress is what we call a delusion. Okay. A false belief. Because someone just put in there that their mother swore bats was under their bed. Under the mattress, bats. Bats? Yeah, bats, like vampire bats or bats. <laughs> I, even, <laughs> I mean, I even led my grandmother into her bedroom one day because I didn't want to not believe her. I mean... I was taught not to contradict my elders. And so I let her into her bath be bedroom one day and I said, Grandma, let's look at your mattress. And I flipped it up and looked underneath it. And I said, help me here. I don't see any place where these birds could be coming out and pecking at your face. And boy, she had the most brilliant response. She said to me, oh, they're there, Lisa but they're very clever. And that's another thing I've learned about people with dementia. They become masterful at mm. covering up their, their, their beliefs. So that's a, an example of a delusion. It's also called a false belief. The rats invading her house and running along her walls, which she could see, that's a hallucination. Hallucinations okay. can also be you hear things that aren't really there. The stealing of the jewelry and the men wanting to harm her, that falls under paranoia. All three of those are very common uh, behaviors that we see. And it's all due to the damage uh, of the brain cells that is occurring as they progress through this disease. Mm. So... You know, these things are happening. Um, and you, like you said, you don't want to say they're a liar and you're trying to get to understand. So what happens like when an individual who's in a deep stage of it, like I guess the third stage, and it's like they're speaking in a language that you can't understand? Well, um, so they, a lot of times, that's actually a really good point. I, I'm glad you brought it up because that's another Thing that commonly happens to people with Alzheimer's disease, that they will revert back to their first language. So uh, my grandmother spoke fluent Yiddish. And sometimes she would start talking in Yiddish or Polish because that mm. was the country she was from. And I didn't understand a word she was saying, but she, when her short-term memory switch was kind of flipped off, she reverted back to her her native language. And that happens pretty commonly. My mother, I mean, my grandmother had the, the entire spectrum of, of uh, 
symptoms. She had them all. Not everybody experiences hallucinations or paranoia, but my grandmother had them all. So, and that was my very first experience with somebody with Alzheimer's disease. So I saw the extreme version of the behaviors that accompany this disease. But um, the other, the other um, side of the question is, because uh, I'm not sure if you meant speaking in a native language or the behavior that they're trying to tell you something or um, how do you effectively respond to somebody who's having a delusion or a false belief and you don't want to upset them by trying mm -hmm. to steer them back into your reality? Mm -hmm. We recommend you do what we call join their reality. And the reason why it, you really aren't given a choice, you can't you you absolutely can't reason with a person who has Alzheimer's disease. They lose the ability to reason things out like we do when we have healthy brains. So they become, I, you can't reason them out because what are they becoming irritable and more aggressive? Yes. And it can escalate into what we call a catastrophic reaction. And that is an extreme reaction of aggressiveness, they can lash out, they can scream. So what you want to do is minimize that reaction by doing what we call joining their reality and okay. going along with whatever it is they're telling you. And you don't have to lie about it. You can just join them, say, like I did unbeknownst to me. It's like, Grandma, show me where these birds are coming from. And she couldn't answer the question because they didn't exist but she said oh they're there lisa they're very clever and i said oh i see okay so i'm joining her reality instead of saying that's the craziest thing i ever heard of there's no way birds could be you know that's really going to set the person off and it, it can get really ugly okay so that portion of it, but um, I think we were speaking of earlier about cognitive problems mm -hmm. because I've been around some individuals with these, um, well, my great grandmother, rushed her soul, when she started developing, she just started using the bathroom anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it will be just talking and then she'll just start urinating. And I'm like, great grandma, what are you doing? Like, like, so is that a part of it um, as far as like, they forget like doing the basics as far as like bathing, dressing, eating, um, just typical hygiene things. They forget everything. And in the beginning, in the mid stages, they don't forget all the time. Um, but by the end, they pretty much are dependent on their caregivers to help them with everything. So there's techniques that you can, um, put into place to help minimize that thing. Like one of the things is to put somebody who's having an incontinence problem or what you just described your great grandma doing, putting her on mm -hmm. a toileting schedule. So the caregiver takes her actually to the bathroom every two hours, let's say, mm -hmm. but that's around the clock thing. Uh, because she was uh, no longer able to tell anybody that, she felt the need to go and that happens.
that happens. Uh, it's very common. Okay, so I guess, you know, now that we've we went through this and developed the, the development stage is like, what are some of the treatments? Is there any treatments? There are no medical treatments. These are all um, psychosocial approaches. Mm -hmm. So it's knowing how to respond to whatever behavior or or action that you're seeing or things they're saying. Um, and they're all pretty counterintuitive. It's like most people, if your grandma is telling you that or accusing you of stealing something because she hid something and couldn't remember where she put it or even that she hid it. So mm -hmm. in her mind, she believes that you're there visiting. She can't find whatever it is she thinks she's missing because she put it someplace. So you're the obvious person that took it. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to agitate her by insisting that that's not the case. What you want to do is play into her belief by saying something like, well, come on, grandma. You know, I'd never do something like that, but let's go look for it. I'll help you find it. So there's a lot okay. of different approaches and techniques that um, are um, learnable to avoid having that situation get out of control by arguing because that's not going to do any good. It's only going to escalate the situation. So that's, that's the approach we take, but it's not really a treatment. It's, it's behavior modification, if you will. And um, that's, that's what I work with families and caregivers to teach them so they can, um, they can avoid having the situation turn into um, a scene and then right. just get back to spending quality time with that person and enjoying each other's company. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a best practice for everything that we see come up on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day basis when people are suffering from um, brain damage is basically brain damage and they lose their cognitive abilities and it's really sad, but there is a, you know, there is a right way and a, and a not so right way. And um, once people learn these approaches, then they will have a more enjoyable relationship with either their loved one or the person they're caring for, because it's not always going to be a struggle it's not always going to be a fight. It's not always going to be a situation that, you know, gets out of control. So um, it is very, very realistic for people who live with brain disease that causes dementia to have very meaningful, fulfilling lives. But it takes it takes um, knowledge and education and specialized skill to manage that from the family members side of it or the caregiver side of it. It's not an easy job. It's probably the hardest job anybody will ever have to take on is to care for somebody or have a family member who lives with brain disease. Okay. So um by you by you actually been in this field, um, has there ever been um 
I guess, cases of elder, elder abuse? Oh, daily, all the time, all the time. And it comes in every shape and form you can imagine. Financial elder abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse. And it happens um, by the family members. I've been kind of seeing occurrences of it for 30 years and it just blows me away. But people do what they're going to do. So, you know, a couple of examples. Um are uh, being psychologically abusive to somebody because you don't understand the behaviors you're seeing or you get frustrated because you're so sick and tired of them asking you the same question over and over and over again. So you lose your patience. That okay. happens a lot. Um, there's a lot of financial abuse going on where people who live with Alzheimer's disease are left to their own defenses because the family doesn't want to have to use their money or sell their house because they want it for themselves once their loved one has passed. So they basically just ignore the environment that they're living in and that they're not safe and they're not eating right because people with Alzheimer's disease forget that they've eaten and right. forget that they haven't washed their clothes and uh, that they haven't taken a shower or they have to go to the bathroom and it just comes out. These are all realistic situations that occur every single day. And then there's the, um, the physical abuse where, people get hit or, you know, kind of in, in, in that arena, but they can't tell anybody. So it happens. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on a lot. And it's not just with people with uh, Alzheimer's disease. I mean, the elderly seem to suffer from elder abuse, probably, you know, it's pretty, pretty rampant, but Imagine being an elderly person that can't remember anything and can't defend yourself and can't speak out about anything because your brain's damaged and it happens all the time. So when, when, when stuff like that has happened, as far as like the abuse, um, I guess we would have to reach out to someone would have to reach out like to adult protective services. Exactly. Okay. So, from what I'm getting from you is once you decide to become the caretaker of this person, you have to, I guess, I don't want to say like a two-year-old because a two-year-old asks you the same question five times in a row. So I guess you have to develop um, time, patience, and understanding. Like you said, uh, I got to come into your world, not my reality, not what's really going on in reality, but your reality, as you stated about birds and bats being in the bed and uh, just basically trying to get them to understand you trying to get them to understand. But as you stated, when you said your grandmother, you just kept asking her and she said the birds were clever. Basically there was really no answer to it. No, because they weren't real. And, but in her mind, they were, she 1000% believed that there were birds living in her mattress in her mind. They really did. They came out at night. They pecked her face. It was, 
you know, very unbelievable, very far-fetched in my mind, but not in her mind. And as long as she believed it, there's nothing anybody can do or say to, to change that belief. So you just kind of have to join her belief. That's the only solution. There's no other solution that would be um, healthy for her or healthy for me or anybody else. That's just the way it is. Okay. So are there like, I know you said medically, um, there can be, it could be some cures, but is there anything that's just naturally, you know, that could be an actual cure? There's no cure for Alzheimer's disease. No cure. The only thing that we know, and this is based on decades and decades and decades of study, but it's still not a foolproof thing, is there are these risk factors that I talked about. And the, the fewer the risk factors that apply to you, mm -hmm. uh, the, the less risk you will have of developing it. So there are um, things that people can do proactively before they develop Alzheimer's disease, like you know, eat a healthier, make healthier choices with food and get regular exercise and um, keep your brain active. These, all, all of these things, they have shown um, a parallel to for lowering your risk of developing it. But that doesn't mean you won't. Um, it, that's one thing about brain disease, Alzheimer's disease and the other ones. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, you know, in my family, my grandmother had it and two of my mother's sisters, but my mm -hmm. mother didn't develop Alzheimer's disease. So it didn't pick on her, but it could have very easily. It's obviously runs in my family, but two of her sisters and her mother. So she just, it skipped over her. So that's kind of the way it goes. Um, but, you know, there are things that we can do to lower our risk, but that still doesn't mean that you're going to get passed over. You're either going to get it or you're not. And it's as simple as that. Well, from your experience, since you said you dealt with eight family members, what is your experience with it um, as far as like from the beginning with your grandmother to the last person, like your experience over time? I guess I'd say over time and each new person, it become it, has it become easier for you? Um, five of the people that uh, in my family who have developed, and I, I don't want to say Alzheimer's disease because not everybody had Alzheimer's disease, but they had some brain disease that caused dementia. A few of them were Alzheimer's, um, and then there were other brain diseases that, uh, caused their dementia. And then three of my, so five of the eight were blood relatives. Okay. The other three were through marriage. So okay. to give you an example, my sister's late husband, he developed Huntington's disease. That is a rare, very rare neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's, like Lewy body that Robin Williams had. Um, but it's very, very rare. And um, 
The symptomology is very similar in all of these diseases. So to answer your question, um, it didn't surprise me at all to have five family, I mean, to have five family members because, you know, we, I started with my grandmother and then the next one and the next one and the next one. And the more family members that developed it, the less surprised I was <laughs> because um, it's showing a pattern of running in my family. Um, very surprised that my brother-in-law developed Huntington's disease. Um, my father, who was diabetic and had congestive heart failure. Now he developed dementia, but it was due, it, he had what's called vascular dementia. And mm. he ended up having these TIAs or mini strokes which is very common when you have diabetes or heart condition. And then his little mini strokes caused his dementia, um, which didn't surprise me because I know that those conditions can cause mini strokes. And he ended up having them later in life. And then mm -hmm. the dementia followed because when he had the little mini strokes, they damaged his brain. So that's another way that people get dementia is, through medical conditions and then having what they call TIAs, trans ischemic attacks, which is synonymous with mini strokes, but regular strokes can cause dementia too. So um, my dad's twin brother mm. had Alzheimer's disease. So there's another family member that had Alzheimer's disease but my dad didn't have that form of dementia. He had the vascular dementia from his medical conditions. So uh, I think it just kind of supports that it can affect anybody at any time. And, you know, statistically it's not in our favor, especially when we're, when we reach the age of 85 now, because one in three people will have it. Mm. So as far as anything new that's coming, is there like any new studies, um, um, new funding or anything going into this disease? Yes, there are probably over 300 trials going on right now, testing different possible cures or treatment. And I say cures or treatment is because so far there's nothing that has proven to work and we're hopeful that if it doesn't cure the disease at least it'll treat it and maybe prolong the progression or stop the progression um there is the the doctor who wrote the forward to my book dr shrivastava He's been working on stem cell research for 30 years now and tells me that it looks promising for either curing or treating Alzheimer's disease, but it's still in clinical trials and there's nothing definitive. There are drugs being tested. Um, a couple of drugs have recently been approved by the FDA, but the problem with those drugs that seem to help with Alzheimer's disease 
the challenges you have to treat the person when they're in their very early stage of the disease. And then again, you have the problem of deciphering whether or not somebody actually has Alzheimer's disease or it's just a part of normal aging. Because like I said, most people aren't even diagnosed until they're already well into their mid stage. So that makes these drugs that have shown some promise difficult because they will only work if you catch it in its very early stages and they don't have any way to to do that yet. There is no test. Actually, the only way right now that's that a person's Alzheimer's disease is definitively proven to exist is mm-hmm. by doing an autopsy. The diagnosis mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's disease is really a process of elimination and doing some like mini mental tests and things like that. But to actually have a way to see that a person has Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't exist yet. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process of elimination to see, well, let's see if it's this, let's see, but I'm talking about Alzheimer's disease. There are other brain diseases that can show up on um, diagnostic imaging tests. Mm-hmm. but not Alzheimer's disease yet. Okay. For those who didn't catch it, the book is called Truth, Lies, and Alzheimer's its Secret Faces. It's on uh, it's on the website, um, which is www.truthliesalzheimer's.com. Also, it is on Amazon and other fine booksellers. So how long has this book been out? Um, it just was released this year. Yeah, it hasn't been out very long at all. There's also, there's an audiobook version that just came out about a month ago, which is really fun to listen to. The narrator is just amazing. Um, there's a hardback version. There's a paperback version. And we have a training course too. So anybody that would be interested in learning these best practices that we've been talking about on this show. Um, I, we have a training program that teaches people how to respond to these behaviors and all that. Cause it's, um, it's a very, you know, it's, it, it, it takes specialized training. It's not something that people just would instinctively know the right, right way to respond to because the responses really are, are counterintuitive. They're counter to our instinctive responses. Are these trainings free? No, no, we haven't actually even started <laughs> them yet, but um, they're not going to be, you know, probably a couple hundred dollars for the course. It's a six week course. So it's a okay. lot, a lot, a lot of information. And you're teaching the course? Yes, yes, I teach okay. the course. Okay, all right. It'll be available so, in the next sixty days. We're um, we're finalizing it now. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if you saw the show prior, but I sent the link if you because this is the segment that we call "I Be Damn" right here. I'm not sure if you've seen it. This is where we tell a horror story that's been a, a horror dating story. And we just break it down to the end. But today, this is a different Abby Dam. This is based on how she she said how she got rid of her husband 
and she got revenge on his mistress, on his side chick. So this is the story. It was Christmas 2019, and Claudia, a friend of me from college, hit me up on Facebook to tell me that she has a great opportunity for me, for me to be my own boss, that she bumped into my husband at the store, and she said, he's still fine. I can't believe y'all got married. My husband was fine in college when he cheated on me with Claudia, and he's still fine today, but everything that looks good ain't good for you. My husband decided without my input that he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad, and he spent majority of our four-year marriage trying to get me pregnant, which he failed. Miraculously, he got an ex-girlfriend pregnant but refused to acknowledge the child. That was a low point in our union. But as soon as our marriage hit rock bottom, my husband began to dig. My husband cheated. My, my cheating husband was caught in the bed with a married woman that woman's husband stabbed him. Can you imagine the shame I felt having to pick him up from the hospital under those circumstances? Lord, after the stabbing of my husband, my husband had a new limp and a brand new colostomy bag. <laughs> Claudia didn't know about the poop bag and then began to text each other. She said, her, I can't wait to feel you. Him, let's take it slow. I want to build a life with you. What he really meant is that he's got a brand new poop bag or whatever. Claudia was competitive the I don't trust females loud pick me type who didn't feel worthy until she was under someone else's man. Claudia was also desperate for money. Under normal circumstances, I would have ignored Claudia's DMs, but those were not normal times. And in that that snake Claudia, I saw an opportunity. I met with Claudia and listened to her pitch about her pyramid screen. MLL makeup company, I said slowly, my husband has all the money. I have to ask him. Claudia, eyes widened. I confronted my husband about the text message from Claudia and he tried to flip the script while, while you unlocking my phone with my fingers when I'm asleep. But I told him that I forgave him and I didn't want to argue. If you love someone, set them free, right? Claudia is rich. She can support the lifestyle you deserve and I feel I'm holding you back. He was silent. I continued, moved out and moved on. I already told Claudia I'm okay with it. My husband moved out while I was at work. One week later, they both were blowing up my phone. Claudia wanted the be- wanted that beautiful unemployed man with a colostomy bag out of her crib. He wanted nothing to do with Claudia after he found out she's not rich, but she's poorer than me because she works multiple jobs and spends a little money she has on pyramid schemes. Her, come get your husband. Also, are you ready to invest in my MLL program? Him, baby, I want to come home. Me in the group chat with both of them. Love takes time, work it out. I believe in y'all. I changed my locks and filed for divorce. My ex-husband moved on with another woman and Claudia made angry poses about how he used and ruined her credit. I'm divorced and finally at peace. (laughs) That's the story this week. (laughs) So I guess they say, which is true, if you love them, you should let them, if you love them, you should set them free. And she set them free. But... If anybody have any time, um, any any questions for you, Ms. Lisa, where can they find you at? They can they can find me um, uh, through my blog, which is not all who wander need be lost on Facebook, or through my website, uh, www.truthliesalzheimers.com. All yeah, all run together. Yeah, so. Um, 
send me a message. I'll answer you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thank you for coming, coming, and you know, sharing us your knowledge of you know this disease, um, the solid killer that nobody ever talks about. You know, so thank you again for coming. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a great pleasure, and thanks for supporting my my mission of raising awareness of this tragic disease. I appreciate it. Uh, we we know it's the holidays right now, and I definitely wanted to get this show before the holiday because tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and you may be sitting somewhere sit, sitting with someone who's diagnosed with this. So tonight was basically trying to get an understanding of what may go on tomorrow at the dinner table or wherever you're at having dinner. For sure. And a lot of these things that we talked about this evening are on the website or on the blog. So you don't have to take the training course. Um, it's more in detail, but there's a lot of this information that is accessible by people just by going to those two places. Oh, okay. All right. So next week, on Amsterdam Talk, we're crossing the border next week. We're going over to over into Canada next week. So we're going to have Danny Covey on the show next week talking about his story of faith and healing and hope. Uh, eight open, eight heart surgeries, four more open heart, almost died on the operating table three times. He wants to tell us about his triumphant story um, of how he bounced back and became a black belt in jujitsu. So we're going next, we're going to Canada next week, y'all. So same time, well, eight o'clock. Yeah, 8 p.m. next time, same day, 8 p.m. We're going to Canada with, a, with a, a brother that had eight heart surgeries, three, four of them open heart. So thank you again, uh, Miss Lisa, for coming. Um, and that's today's show. So definitely be patient with your loved ones tomorrow. Um, Thanksgiving, have a, I'm about to say have a merry Thanksgiving, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving, um, spend some time with your loved ones, whether you're going to his house, her house, or whoever's house tomorrow, just make sure you spend some time with them and the days are getting shorter. Um, and I do want to speak on this, one of my beloved childhood cartoons, The Green Ranger, uh, Jason David Frank, Suicide. Check on your friends, please. Check on your family every day. I mean, even if you're bugging them, just check on them because you never know what somebody's going through. Um, and that's it. Do uh, you have anything else to say, Ms. Lisa? Wish everybody a very happy Thanksgiving and happy holidays. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs>